Our Old Testament reading this morning is Genesis 2, 18 through 25. Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. This is God's word. And the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam and he slept and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. In our New Testament reading and our sermon text is Matthew 19, verses 1 through 12. Now it came to pass, when Jesus had finished these sayings, that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed him there. He healed them there. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him, and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, And the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? He said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. His disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, All cannot accept this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who are born thus from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who are made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He who is able to accept it, let him accept it. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Pray with me now that he might bless it to us. Our great God and Father, we thank you for your holy word, your life-giving word. Lord, when you spoke in the beginning, let there be light. There was light. And when you and our Lord Jesus Christ 
said, let there be light. In the new creation, there was light again, the light of the gospel, of the glory of God shining in the face of Jesus Christ. So speak now into our hearts by your spirit, your life-giving word, and help us to listen and trust you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. In the text we just read, Matthew 19, 1-12, our Lord Jesus Christ claims absolute authority over our lives, including our marriages. And he also claims absolute priority over our lives and in our marriages. He claims authority and he claims priority over all of life and especially in, in matters of marriage, as we've just seen in the text. Now, in our, in our culture recently, there's been all kinds of discussion on definitions of fundamental things, things that we thought were, were obvious to us. But there's been all these debates and discussions about certain fundamental aspects of the world we live in. And, and one of those discussions has swirled around, around marriage. What, what is marriage? Who, what do we define marriage as? Um, but underneath those attempts at redefining things, including marriage, is the question of not so much what is marriage, but who decides what a marriage is? Who defines this world that I live in? Who defines this marriage that I'm in? Who decides what it is? Uh, it's the question of, of authority. Who has authority to decide these things. It's a very personal question, especially when we start talking about things like marriage, the question of authority, because it gets, it gets very personal very quick, doesn't it? Um, whoever defines marriage, whoever says this is what marriage is, defines my marriage and has authority over how, over how, I, how, I, how my marriage is. Um, we like to think we get to choose to be married and, and choose what our marriage looks like and how it's run, that it can be run according to our own rules. Um, but, but our Lord Jesus Christ says, I have authority. I define what marriage is and what marriage is for. Jesus also demands that we recognize his priority in, in our lives and in our marriages. He, he teaches us here in the text that, that marriage matters, but at the same time, he also teaches us singleness matters and that, and that both of them are important but secondary and that his kingdom is first that he takes the priority and his kingdom has priority, whether we are married or whether we are single. And so really, the point he's making here to us is, is very similar to a point he's been making over and over throughout Matthew's whole gospel. It's been an important theme throughout his gospel. He comes with authority. He preaches with authority. He teaches. He heals. He calms storms, right? Showing his great authority. And he also claims priority. He's the king. He's the Messiah. He's the Savior. He's the one we were made for. And he's come to claim his own and establish his kingdom. And he says, seek first the kingdom of heaven. And he says, whoever loves uh, father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He claims authority and he claims priority. So the question is, as he claims those two things, in all your life and in your marriage or your singleness, are you bowing to his authority? And is he your priority? Are you 
tender and teachable and bowed low before Him, ready to trust and hear and, and obey what He calls you to do? Or is your heart stubborn against Him? It's that sharp division that comes to the forefront here in Matthew 19. It's that, it's that question. Are you, is your heart ready to listen to His authority and, and give Him that priority? Or is your heart against Him, hard-hearted against Him? As chapter 18 wraps up and chapter 19 begins, we're at this turning point again in Matthew's Gospel. Chapter 18 concludes the fourth major teaching block. Chapter 19 transitions us from Jesus' healing and teaching ministry in Galilee, northern part of Palestine. Down now, Jesus is starting to travel down to Judea, towards Jerusalem, and towards the south of Palestine, where he's going to be uh, crucified and where his life and ministry will come to a climax. There's only one more healing miracle left. Some, that, that, that aspect of his ministry is starting to fade out now into the background. And, and, and the, the, the wedge that has been driving through his hearers is really coming to this, this climax. Are you for him or against him? Are you going to trust him or are you going to reject him? And so as we pick up in verse 3, the conflict here kicks off with the Pharisees once again. So Jesus is down in Judea. And the Pharisees come to him in verse 3, and they come, verse 3 tells us, to test him. They come to test him. That's important to note. Um, what, they're not coming to Jesus because they are genuinely seeking the truth. They're not just confused about some things, and they're honest inquirers about, about, about Jesus and his kingdom. Um, they, are, they are coming to test him. They're trying to set a trap for him. They're trying to get him to stick his foot in his mouth and offend people and get himself in trouble. Um, so they say, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? It's, it's, a, it's a clever test. They did a good job setting the trap. Um, as, as sinful as it is for them to set the trap, it, it, it's clever, right? Um, if, if Jesus says, no, it's not right, well, then he seems to be contradicting Moses. And the Old Testament, get himself in the trouble with the Jews if he does that. And if, if he says no, he also could get himself in trouble with, with Herod. It's not that long ago that we read about how Herod got pretty offended by someone saying, you can't divorce your wife for just any reason. Um, John the Baptist told Herod that, and look how John the Baptist ended. Right? In prison and then beheaded. And so perhaps the Pharisees are trying to get Jesus to fall into the same trap, say the same thing, and get in trouble with Herod and get rid of him that way. On the other hand, if Jesus says, yes, it's fine, then they can accuse him of being, giving license to every lust and giving free reign to sin. Um, on top of this, there's this ongoing debate at the time in Judaism between these two camps about how, 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 we, how they view divorce. There is one school of, of thought in Judaism that said, you can divorce your wife, sure, any reason. She burns the toast, get a new wife. You see someone prettier, get a new wife. But then there was another school that said, no, no, you, you can't quite take it to that extreme, but they were still quite permissive. And so they're trying to embroil Jesus in these things and to test him and trap him in this controversy. So they're coming to Jesus with their own agenda. Not his. They're not coming saying, teach us about this kingdom of heaven you've been describing. What do you mean when you keep saying the Son of Man must die and rise again? They don't come with, with those kinds of good, genuine questions. 
seeking what he has to say, but they come with their own agenda, their own ideas, and their test to expose him so they don't have to trust him. Loved ones, um, it's a temptation for us to approach Jesus that same way sometimes. I've got my ideas, and I've got my agenda. And so I, I come to Jesus with those things instead of coming to him saying, Lord, what do you have to say? We, we come testing, right? We come saying, if, if you can prove this or, or answer this, then I'll trust you. But not until then will I trust you. We come testing him. Instead, instead, we should come trusting him. Lord, I believe. Help me understand better. Lord, I believe. I have these questions. Help me understand these questions. You teach me. That is, that is how we should come to him. A, a humble heart, a teachable heart. Anyway, we see the Pharisees. They set this, they set this trap for Jesus. Um, they test him. Jesus, of course, sees right through what they're doing. And, uh, and he answers very well. His answer cuts to the heart of the issue. His opening words in verse 4 say this. He says to them, Have you not read? It's, it's the perfect answer, isn't it? Have you not read? And then, then he goes on to quote some of the first chapters of the whole Bible, as though he's saying, Don't you guys, haven't you read your Bibles? Haven't you even read Genesis 1 and 2, the first two chapters? Of course they've had this memorized since they were young, these Pharisees. But Jesus is saying, you've never really even understood the first two chapters of God's Word by the question you're asking. They haven't bowed their knee to God. Not really. They're out looking for exceptions. They're looking for loopholes. They're trying to play clever with God's Word instead of bowing before God in reverence and awe and devotion and obedience. Jesus says the clear and obvious teaching of God's word is that God made man male and female, man and woman, and God brought them together and joined them in marriage. And what God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus teaches uh, three essential things about marriage here. First, he teaches that it's from God. God made marriage, that it's instituted by God. It's not a social construct. It's not something man invented. It's, it's something that God designed and God himself instituted. Um, uh, we, we see this in, that first, uh, in the second chapter of Genesis, as God himself is the one who sees it's not good for Adam to be alone. Adam doesn't come to God with the idea of marriage. God sees it. God comes up with the idea. God puts Adam to sleep. God creates a wife for him, brings the wife to him. God officiates the wedding ceremony. He brings them together in, in marriage. Not only does God then ordain the institution of marriage, but every lawful marriage after that is a marriage before the Lord and a marriage that God brings together. Every lawful marriage, when, when, when you've been lawfully married, uh, God is the one who marries you. He's the one who, who cements that relationship and makes you one flesh together. It is God-given. second thing Jesus teaches us about, about marriage here is that it means being made, made one flesh. Jesus says in verse 5, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. 
Jesus says this is God's design for marriage. It's oneness. It's, it's unity. Whole person unity. Sexual unity. Financial unity. Right? Spiritual unity. Emotional unity. The complete sharing of one whole person with another whole person. Without barriers. Without boundaries. Being made one together. Nothing held back. No, no... Um, this is God's design, loved ones, for marriage. And that's then what we all are to be seeking as we bow to Christ's authority over what marriage is. We need to be seeking this kind of oneness and unity in our marriages. Not, not tucking away escape closets. Or, 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 well, if this happens, then I'm out. Um, but, uh, but saying, uh, no, we are to con- commit to being one together in every possible way we can be. To be united together. Um, the third thing Jesus teaches us about marriage here is that it's to be lifelong. And this really follows from the others. If God has made it, and it's to be a whole person union with another whole person, it is to last until God says it's done. If He made it, you don't get to break it. If He brings you together, you don't get to separate it. Um, God's design for marriage is that it's a whole lifelong commitment. And so Jesus, as he describes this for us and gives us God's teaching on marriage, he's pointing out to the Pharisees that they've got the whole question wrong. Their their entire perspective is is altogether wrong. They're starting with the assumption that divorce is no big deal, that breaking a marriage is no big deal. Um, but Jesus is saying, no, God made marriage and he made it to be this whole person union between two people for their whole life long. And so as they, the Pharisees treat marriage lightly and think they can just uh, teach people to walk out of marriages easily, they're trashing God's design. They're, they're, they're dishonoring God. But the Pharisees, Jesus says this, and they still aren't corrected. They still don't listen. And they respond... They respond in verse 7, and they think, they, they think Jesus has now taken the bait, and they've got him in their trap. They say in verse 7, Okay, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and to put her away? They think Jesus is taking the bait. We've got him now, right? They reference this law in Deuteronomy 24, where Moses makes this provision that if someone gets a divorce, if a husband is sending his wife away, then if she goes and marries someone else and then gets divorced from him, the first husband can't take her back. It's a protection that's put in there for, this, for the sake of, 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 of this woman in, in Deuteronomy. But the Pharisees are reading it as God's approval for divorce. How does Jesus, how does Jesus respond? Again, his, his response is quite devastating. He says, Moses permitted divorce... Not commanded it, permitted it. And why? Because of your hard hearts. Moses knew how hard-hearted, how stubborn and sinful you would be. So he permitted divorce as a temporary necessity of your sinfulness. Um, Jesus is not speaking in the abstract or about just the Old Testament people, but he's speaking right to the Pharisees and he says it right to them. Moses permitted this because of your hard hearts. He he puts it right to the Pharisees here. Um, You are the hard-hearted sinners, Pharisees. You're the ones hunting for loopholes in God's good law. 
and trying to find these exceptions. You're making the exception into the ideal. And he's diagnosing them with the same spiritual disease that we read of so often in the Old Testament. God's people in the Old Testament so often are hard-hearted, stiff-necked, right? Refusing to learn, refusing to be led, refusing to be taught, refusing to humble themselves before God. And, and the Pharisees could look at, their, look at their Bibles and they could look back and they could see all those hard-hearted people before. And they thought they were so different from them. But Jesus is saying, you've got the same spiritual sickness, the same hard heart. They're doing the same thing. We read of that the prophet Malachi calls out. Malachi says this, the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you've been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord God of Israel. Hosts. That's Malachi 2, 14 through 16. And Jesus is picking up on that same sort of language and he's targeting it right to the hard hearts of these Pharisees and he's angry with them for their self-serving, hard-hearted approach to God's good gift of marriage. Because it's not what marriage was designed to be. Marriage is supposed to be about faithfulness, commitment for the long term, steadfast love. Right? Fickle love isn't love. Lasting love is love. And that's what God designed marriage to, to show. He designed marriage to be a picture of His love for His people. Ephesians 5, 31-32 says, the mystery of marriage is profound and it refers to Christ and His church. So this is God's design. It's to be a picture of his love for his people and his people's love for him, a picture of steadfast love, not faithlessness. And so when you take a marriage, which is supposed to be a picture of that kind of love, and you trash it with your faithlessness and your laziness, you're bringing shame and destruction to that picture. You make a mockery of what it was meant to be. This is why Jesus is calling the Pharisees hard-hearted. He gives one permission for divorce here. Sexual immorality. In the case of sexual immorality, Jesus teaches divorce is permissible. It's not that it's demanded, but it's permissible. And remarriage after that kind of a divorce is also permissible. Our Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 24, puts it like this. In the case of adultery after marriage, it is lawful for the innocent party to sue out a divorce and after the divorce to marry another as if the offending party were dead. Adultery ruins, it it destroys the one flesh bond of a marriage. And so the marriage is effectively done uh, at that point. Um, Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 adds another qualification to this, another reason for a a, a biblical grounds for divorce. He says in 1 Corinthians 7 that if there is a level of abandonment that cannot be remedied, that is also 
an exception. And our confession of faith, again, uh, clarifies this helpfully. It says, nothing but adultery or such willful desertion as can no way be remedied by the church or civil magistrate is cause sufficient of dissolving the bond of marriage. So those are the, the, those are the permissions the Scriptures give. And no, no, nothing else. Now, it's hard for the Pharisees to accept it. They, they, that, that's why they're, they're, trying to, they're trying to look for loopholes, because they don't want to accept it. And it's also hard for us to accept it. Because we want to be in charge of ourselves, right? It comes back to that issue of authority. We want to be our own law. Don't I know what's best for me? Better than God might know. And if, if you feel stuck in a, in a bad or broken marriage and you think, it was sure it would be better if I were out of this. How can God know this is good for me to stay in this when I don't have biblical grounds? There are hard times. There are times when it's hard to submit to the Word of God and trust that He knows best. And Jesus here puts His finger on the heart of the issue. Who's the authority over your life, over your marriage? He makes this point so sharply in verse 9, doesn't he? As he's having this debate with the Pharisees, they're going around trying to look for loopholes and exploit them, but Jesus says, verse 9, I say to you, I say to you, what's he doing? He's saying, I have authority here, Pharisees. Right? He's the one. They've cited Deuteronomy. He cited Genesis. Now he cites himself. He cites Jesus. And he says, this is what the Messiah says. This is what the King says. This is what God with us says. This is what the one greater than Moses says. That he's the bringer of a new covenant. And that he will give... Uh, he, he does not give provision for sin, right? Except sexual immorality as a reason for marriage. And so he's throwing the gauntlet down. Will you bow to his authority? The Pharisees don't answer him. They seem to have no response. They, they walk away, beaten, tail between their legs, to regroup and try another tack uh, again later. Jesus has exposed their rebellion against God and, and against God's Messiah. But the disciples have a question. And so the disciples now ask their question in verse 10. If this is what marriage is, Jesus, if it's this strict and your, your exceptions are this limited, isn't it better if no one gets married? Um, a lifelong whole person commitment before God without exceptions? Surely singleness is better than, 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 than those kinds of shackles. Um, how would you answer the disciples' question if it were you? I think I would have said to the disciples, um, well, no, no, no uh, you guys don't understand. A relationship, a marriage relationship, is not, is not uh, the old ball and chain. Right? It, it's a sweet thing. That kind of commitment is where love flourishes. A marriage relationship is the best possible gift this side of heaven God gives us. Um, and that's true in many ways. It can be. Um, Jesus is not against marriage. He himself goes to a marriage, performs his first miracle there. The Bible has a whole book dedicated to celebrating, effusively celebrating, married love. Um, so God, God is, uh, is, 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 uh, sees good in marriage, but Jesus doesn't say any of those things that we might have said. Instead, he doesn't agree with them either, but he pivots to another vital point. He uses their question to pivot to this other point. Not only does he have authority 
over marriage. But he also takes priority in marriage. Um, and he says some people are called by God to be single. Some people are called to, to n- n- not all, uh, not many, but, but some are called to be single for the sake of the kingdom. And Jesus is teaching his disciples that it's a, it's a good thing. It's an honorable thing. Just as high in honor as being married in Christ's kingdom, to be single in his kingdom. And so we should hold singleness and marriage both in equally high honor. And Jesus is trying to teach us that whichever you are, whatever your calling is, married or single, the priority in your marriage or in your singleness is him and his kingdom. We're always trying to just orient our lives around ourselves and our kingdoms. Marriage about making me happy or my spouse happy. Uh, singleness, it's about making me happy, about not having obligations or, 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 or uh, being able to live the way I want to live. Right? Carve out a little space for me in my little kingdom. But Jesus says, I take priority and my kingdom takes priority. His kingdom doesn't fit into your life in a neat little compartment closed off as just another little aspect of how you live. Married or single, right? His kingdom demands everything, all of you, married or single. He is the one we were made for, loved ones. And, and no, no, no other love can match his love. No other goodness can match his goodness. No other devotion can match his devotion. Um... Consider his love, his love for you, brothers and sisters, his everlasting love, right? He loved you from before the foundation of the world, before the mountains existed, before the stars were in the sky, he set his love on you when you were still a sinner. He came and died for you. Um, And now he lives in heaven praying for you. And he's done everything to save you and bring you to himself. He's done it all for your good. And his, his love is never harsh or fickle or faithless. Well, what other love can compare with that? There's a wonderful hymn that puts it like this. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Vast, unmeasured, boundless, free. Rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. That's the one who comes to us and claims our priority. Married or single, he comes and he says, I will love you best with an everlasting love. I claim priority. And he comes and he brings his kingdom and he calls us to himself in that kingdom. Brothers and sisters, ask yourselves, is that how you are living under his authority, and with him as your priority, married or single, in all your life. This is what Jesus is driving home to the Pharisees and his disciples. But what if that's not how you're living? What if, honestly, no, no, Jesus, um, there are areas in my life where I kick against your authority. Areas in my marriage or singleness where I, where I am... Uh, not submitting to you, or I've not made you the priority? What if your marriage is actually full of idolatry? That you're looking to your spouse uh, to, to give what only Christ can give? Or you're looking at your singleness that same way? Uh, what if, what if um, 
What if you've made an idol out of, out of your marriage or your singleness? What, what if, um, what if uh, you've not bowed to his authority in your marriage? What if you have been divorced and it wasn't on biblical grounds? And you didn't in the past submit to Christ's authority on this? What if you are contemplating, kind of wishing for a divorce now? What if that's where your heart is and you, you don't really want to bow to the authority of Christ? In other words, what if you, loved ones, have something of the same spiritual heart condition of the Pharisees? That hard-heartedness that Jesus diagnoses. Jesus says he's not going to accommodate sin. He's not making provisions for sin. What are we supposed to do with our hard hearts? We've got the same spiritual heart condition of hard-hearted sinfulness that they did. What do we do? I wonder what would have happened if... If just one of the Pharisees had been there testing Jesus, instead of getting offended and walking away, had suddenly been convicted, I wonder what would have happened if they had suddenly just felt broken and said, Jesus, you are right. We are hard-hearted. Uh, we have not bowed to your authority. We've not recognized your priority. Our hearts are full of sin. How are we to be saved? What would Jesus have said if they had said that to him? If you come to him with that same confession, say, Lord, my heart is as hard as granite sometimes. I don't want to listen to your authority or make you the priority. But Lord, save me from this hard heart. I want a soft heart, a teachable, tender heart. What is, what is, what is Jesus, what is he going to say to that? God gives us the answer. Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-six. Wonderful words. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. God, speaking to his hard-hearted people in the Old Testament, says, I'm going to give you a new heart. A beating heart, a living heart, a loving me heart, a faithful heart, a bowed before me humble heart. That's his promise to his hard-hearted people. How does he fulfill that promise, brothers and sisters? First of all, and, and, and this is so important to see, first of all, he fulfills it in Christ himself. Christ himself comes as true Israel. Israel as Israel should have been. And Jesus comes, and what's his heart like? What is this representative of Israel's heart like? Is it hard? It's humble. It's tender. It's teachable. God's his authority. God's kingdom is his priority. Always, every moment of his life. Jesus comes and his entire life is a life of love and devotion and obedience to God, submitting to him and worshiping him. He takes no exceptions to God's law. He looks for no loopholes to God's law. He loves to keep it and he does keep it all his days. He loves God with all his heart and soul and mind and strength. Jesus himself is the new heart that God gives his people. It, it's, it's in him. It's in Christ. That's the first way God fulfills it. But then the second way, 
he fulfills this promise of a new heart for his people is that he then sends his spirit. And his Holy Spirit takes hard-hearted sinners and he unites them with Jesus Christ, the soft-hearted Savior, so that his heart is counted as mine now. So that, so that I stand before God, not with that hard, granite, rebellious heart, but with Christ's heart counted to me. And my hard-heartedness is forgiven. And your sin in your marriage, and your sin in your singleness is forgiven. And then not only that, but then, then the Spirit comes and He starts to transform you and give you life in this Christ of the soft heart. And, and make your heart beat again like His, and love like His, and bow before God like His, and come alive in His living heart. Loved ones, is there hardness in your heart? Closed-off rooms, areas where, where you're hold back from God, old sins that still hang over you or hang on to you. Places where you resist and kick against God's authority over your life, over your marriage, over your singleness. You need not just a stricter law from Christ. You need Christ Himself, the Savior, to forgive you of those things. Take it to Him. He, 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 he gives Himself to be your Savior from your hard heartedness, loved ones. And He also gives Himself to be the one who by His Spirit transforms your heart. So come to him and, and take on your lips that wonderful prayer of Psalm 51.10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Loved ones, Jesus has absolute authority over our lives and our marriages and our singleness and absolute priority over and in all of them as well. And he is our savior to that end. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that Christ is indeed such a glorious Savior. We pray that we would put all our trust in him, run to him, and that you would make us new in him and teach us to walk in your ways. We pray this in his precious name. Amen.